0: All right, it is the week of January 24th, 2022, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Ogier, and today we've got a lot to cover. It's been a long day. I'm not shaving. I'm a little different with the intro for this episode. So the timestamps are still going to be at the bottom. We're going to do quick hits over a couple of topics because we had a ton of business news this past week, and I can't get to all of it, so I'm going to do some quick hits. Then we're going to talk about the big one, which is Jake Paul. And Jeffrey Wu, Engine One, doing activist investor, investing in the UFC, saying he's going to help change fighter pay. I'm going to break all of that down. Is that realistic? Is it even possible? We're going to dissect that. We're going to talk about Francis Ngannou, best strategy for him now that he's fought out his contract, best PR and mitigation strategy from the UFC. What do they do here? Do they try and make a deal? Do they go their separate ways? We're going to figure all of that out as well. Then we're going to talk PFL. They have a cease and desist from WSOF Global we've got to dive into as well as a new deal with ESPN announced today of this recording and finally we're going to talk about CSAC uh, fighter payouts from UFC 270 because there were some Payouts that were a little bit shocking, specifically a couple of Dana White contender series that came in lower than expected. I'll explain how that's even possible. So, again, timestamps are at the bottom, as always. Make sure you hit the like, subscribe, bell notification, and let's go ahead and dive right in. All right. So, first thing I want to do, because there was just a ton of business news this week which is fantastic but there's just too much for this one week and by the time i cover some of the other stuff next week it'll be less relevant i really want to hit a couple of things in depth i don't want to make a two-hour podcast because i'm pretty sure you guys don't want me to make a two-hour podcast so um i'm gonna do a couple of quick hit things here uh luckily the, our friends over at show money uh released an episode and they have a two-parter out today the damn recording and the part two cover some of these more in depth, so definitely check that out if you want more background for these. Or you can uh, request in the comments. I'm more than happy to talk with you either on Twitter or in YouTube comments uh, about this stuff, or or even just in DMs. What what have you? Um, but don't have time to go super in depth on all these topics. So first off is the Rock deal. Um, obviously, the Rock shoe deal is a is a big deal for both the UFC and for The Rock's new um, shoe company, exclusive footwear of UFC athletes kind of flew a little bit under the radar, but makes sense, right? It's another sponsorship. As I've talked about a million times on this podcast, especially the past month or two, sponsorships are where the UFC is capitalizing right now. That's how they're growing their revenue. Yes, they're gonna try and sell more pay-per-views. Yes, they're gonna try and enter new markets. But right now, the hot ticket to growing revenue in the company is sponsorships. and. as I said before, you're going to keep seeing these pop up and up and up. This is just one of those. Um, I think it's a good deal, especially with The Rock's brand and his name, right? He did the BMF title, um, but betrothal, so to speak, uh, for Jorge Basvidal when he beat Nate Diaz. So it um, makes a lot of sense. Good good brand synergy there. I think it's a win-win for both sides. And and you can't really go wrong if you are the UFC because having The Rock be a a spokesperson for your brand is a very good thing right now, considering how popular he is so makes a lot of sense um one championship financing they raised another hundred and fifty million dollars uh through some very big names and and they were new vest investors these aren't you know old investors that are really continually um putting money into it so i, I mean I'm sure there was some older investors who re-upped, but the, what they announced with this $150 million deal is is brand new investors, some bigger names. Um, my take on it is this, and I've talked about this a little bit before, but um, I, I think the eSports, even though it wasn't announced with some of these new investors, does play a role, at least on some of the numbers and financial documents that they sent. Um Hosting Dota 2 and, and that large tournament is, is a very big deal in the esports world. Esports is kind of booming. Having your foot in the door there and hosting that type of tournament is going to get you some recognition. So I don't think it's necessarily their main focus, but it probably helped their financial documents quite a bit um, and helped sell, at least in part, some of this stuff. But even if it wasn't, right, even if esports really didn't have anything to do with it, I believe it does, but even if it didn't, Again, when it comes down to startup investing, um, and this is something Paul Giff noted in in the Show Money episode, is you know it's not that much money for some of these bigger names. I know 150 million dollars is a ton of money for people like us, but it's not you know a crazy amount of money for some of these bigger funds. And it, it investing at its core is is again getting people to buy what you're selling. And if you can evoke an emotional response in people and they become emotionally attached, you can basically get them to write blank checks. I don't know if that's what's happening with Chachri making these pitches or who is actually kind of doing the big pitch uh, side of things. But you know, my, my favorite example of just how wild and out of control it can get is, is WeWork. Um, there's an amazing article in the Wall Street Journal from 2019. That focuses on Adam Newman and some of the things he did, including spraying a fire extinguisher on potential investors and then getting those investors to give him tons of money. Um, he didn't have a lot of technical knowledge. He didn't really have any technical knowledge for what he was trying to pitch. We work as a tech company, but he had the personality and he had the salesmanship. and And that's all you really need for some of these larger funds, especially during a time period where we've had sustained growth in the markets and capital has just been flying off the shelves, right? It's a very, very open market right now and still is. I, I, again, I've talked about this. I feel like it's going to shift here sooner rather than later, but right now it's still very much a, hey, we're gonna bet on a hundred companies and hope one of them hits to make all of our money back for a lot of these funds and these bigger institutional investors. If you've got a good sales pitch and a good salesman, you can do just about anything. WeWork 2019 was valued at $47 billion before they were supposed to go public. They ended up a year later being valued at $2.9 billion. Once all the dust settled and, and kind of collapsed. But the fact that they were even close And they were very 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 close like we're talking extremely close to going on the market at an ipo at that valuation the fact that they were even there tells you much more than you need to know go go read that story in the wall street journal there are a couple other stories out there there's a book um, i've read part of it but you know it's that is my favorite example if you want to know exactly how wild it gets in the entrepreneurial world, and what one salesman can do. Go check that story. Um, last thing I want to quickly hit on for the quick hits is uh, UFC NFTs. So uh, UFC launched their NFTs this this week, um, this weekend rather after UFC 270. Uh, you had five million dollars worth, a hundred thousand packs for fifty dollars a piece hope i'm doing my math correctly but yeah yeah that's five million dollars um worth with a split between the ufc uh dapper labs who's running this same people that do nba top shot and fighters fighters get a cut of this so um aaron bronstetter tweeted about it quite a bit he threw some examples out there i think he said something like cyril gone and and gone who are getting like thirty six thousand dollars from the five million uh they had to end up recalling it because of a glitch. They didn't have enough champion moments, which are the more rare moments in the packs that they were supposed to. So they are essentially refunding everybody that bought a pack, giving them a free extra moment. uh, And then it will, you know, go on sale again. So it definitely didn't go out without hitch. Um, The line for it was pretty ridiculous. I ended up using um, some credit I had from Top Shot to buy a pack and just see what was, you know, see how it worked um, from from the ufc side here here is what i will say though about nfts because there is a lot of people talking about how yep like it's ridiculous um you know uh it's it's a picture or a gif that you could just copy and paste yeah i mean i'm, I'm not going to debate that but here here is what i will say Rather than get into that whole argument, right? They're just like trading cards, all of that. Because I've done, I've gone down that road a million times. And there's not, but here, here is a valid business argument that no matter what side you're on, you should consider, right? A fad, even if it is a fad, right, is still, it is still an opportunity to make a fair amount of money. On both sides. I mean, again, they sold out. UFC Strike and Dapper Labs—they sold out their packs. That's five million dollars. Two point five, if if we're getting the splits correctly here, which is what was stated. We don't have the actual contracts, but this is what we were told. That's two point five million dollars for Dapper Labs, and two point five or one point two five million for the UFC that they just get for free, and then one point two five million split split amongst fighters, which is better than a lot of current fighter licensing deals. Even if it's just a fad, you can still make ridiculous amounts of money on it. As long as the fad continues. If this ends up being, you know, NFTs end up being, going the way of the Beanie Babies. For those of you that are old to remember, old enough to remember Beanie Babies, right? Remember when Beanie Babies were insanely expensive? Like just outrageous? Heck, Pokemon cards is a fantastic example. I remember growing up, Pokemon cards, Charizard was, you know, holographic card, Charizard was worth a couple thousand dollars, it was a big deal, and then it died down into nothingness for a decade, and now it's back up to just craziness, and trading cards, all that stuff. This may end up being a fad, I can't, I cannot tell you. Right? I cannot tell you if, if this is going to be a blip in time where, oh, yeah, during this time, you remember NFTs? And, and we all look back on it and we're like, man, NFTs, that's crazy. right? I'm not going to get into that debate. But even if that is the case, in a worst case scenario, there is still plenty of money to be made by the company issuing this as long as people are willing to buy. If you have a product that people are willing to buy, doesn't matter. really does not matter. So... Ultimately, it's an important thing to cover right now on the business side, because again, it gives fighters money and it gives the UFC money. And in some cases, you can make money on it. I will be candid in Top Shot, right? Top Shot for a while, NBA Top Shot was, you purchase a pack for $3 and you automatically, like it was free money, it was printing free money. If you could buy a, a bunch of packs, you you got you almost always got a profit. That's how I had the credit to buy the NFC stuff is I wasn't super into it. And then I, you know, saw some of my friends doing it. And I said, okay, you know what, I'm gonna try this. And then I realized, oh, if I buy a pack for this and then I sell each moment in this, I get a guaranteed profit when it's all said and done. So I bought as many packs as I could and I ended up doing okay. So whether or not you want to go down the road of is this a fad? Is this a Temporary thing versus, you know, will this become the new trading card, digital trading card thing and all of that. Right now, in the middle of it. It's irrelevant. It's important business that you have to take into account if you're a fighter and you're trying to get these moments so you can get the 36 grand or whatever it is, which is more than some fighters make for show and win. You, you, it's it is an important piece that we have to cover. So that's all I'll say about that. Those are the quick hits for this one. I know that NFT was a little bit longer, but um, let me know if there are any other topics you want me to cover. A couple of other ones that are a little bit more evergreen. I'll probably hit next podcast or the podcast after. Uh, but we got to get on to some other stuff. But let me know your thoughts about one championship UFC NFTs specifically. I know that's a hot topic right now. So let me know about that and um, the Rock steal. Right, let me know, and, and I'll be more than happy to answer any questions or talk about that a little bit further. All right, so, big topic I want to hit today that I kind of shifted everything around for um, is Jake Paul made an announcement today that he is partnering with Jeffrey Wu and Engine One, which is essentially an activist investor group, and they are buying stock in Endeavor and they're going to work. To bring about change from the inside out, um, it a lot to unpack there. Um, let me pull up some of these tweets so that I can say specifically what Jeffrey Wu, who is who he was referencing, uh, was talking about. So, Jake Paul, our partners, and I are excited to announce the latest anti-fund VC investment which again is um, essentially an investment fund founded uh, that states helping the best founders build Web3 crypto in the future. That's what the Twitter account states. Um, and our goals for the business as impact investors and venture capitalists. Um, and let's see here. Jake Paul says, I've invested in EDR, parentheses UFC stock with my partner, Jeffrey Rood, to focus on UFC. ESG standards relating to fighters. We believe EDR can drive long-term economic value by increasing UFC fighter pay and providing them health care. Reaching out to Engine 1 to partner on this, quotes, endeavor. Um, so... Then Jeffrey Wu goes on, UFC has faced a rising chorus of criticism for the exploitation of its athletes. Uh, The heart of business ratio of revenue going to athletes versus owners and leagues is well below industry standards. This disparity hurts long-term shareholder value and is not going to magically change. Uh, He continues on um, about what Jake is, uh, believes the best way to accelerate the inevitable revolution is to lead it from within the UFC as co-owners and impact investors. They will use their investment stake to rally fans, athletes, all of this stuff. Then it gives us background. So essentially what they're trying to do is what an activist investor would do. Um, To give you an idea of what an activist investor is, they come in and they've bought a certain amount of shares. A lot of times they'll have Fair amount of money behind them, a fund similar to this one. And they will kind of make noise about what change is needed and try and rally other shareholders behind them to either, uh, you know, get a couple of board seats and make their voices louder to put pressure on an existing company to change. In a worst case scenario, you go full on hostile takeover where uh, you're an active investor and you try and buy up enough shares that you can gain control of the company through various partnerships or dealings to get enough shares together, united on one side, that then forces the change. Um, Engine One and Jeffrey Wu were known for adding several pro-climate change um, seats on the board of ExxonMobil. Um, they have four seats. All of them were pretty unexpected in terms of turnout. Uh, I know when this announcement was made with Jake Paul, Ariel Hawani tweeted, you know, this is a big deal. Uh, Hawane also referenced a tweet somebody else said that, you know, stated, you know, these guys had 0.02% of ExxonMobil stock and they took four board seats. They're huge. Let's pump the brakes there. ExxonMobil was a very specific case. If you look at what happened... And what was happening during this change of ExxonMobil, they were, as one story put, the perfect target for an engine one. Um, I mean, and then this is fastcompany.com, inside the story of how a tiny hedge fund, Engine One, just reshaped Exxon's board. Really what they did was gather other activist investors and worked to campaign for change, Exxon was was in a bad place. They had been told that, you know, there was essentially going to be no more, um, no more oil coming from, no new oil and gas fields should be developed um, when the International Energy Agency put out their report. So that kind of, you know, took a hit in them. Um, and then you had a lot of other companies, Royal Dutch Shell, Total, Equinor pouring money into renewable energy, battery storage, alternatives to fossil fuels, all of that. Whereas Exxon, as this story points out correctly, has historically promoted climate change denial, um, despite their own research saying that this was a real thing. So they had a lot of bad PR. The company was not doing well, it was in rough shape. And this is, you know, um, at a time. Had a time that, you know, has come during the pandemic, even pre-pandemic, there was so much going on with uh, OPEC and and oil. You know, it it became a a major, major crisis where there's enough discontent there. It, It was an easy target for an activist investor to go after, basically. And from... A quote we have here, which is Penner, which is let me see. So yes, this is This is from someone at Engine One that essentially described the path they went through to get those seats on the board at Exxon. And and I quote. His last name is Penner. I'm not sure what his first name is. This story has got a bunch of ads and all this stuff. Um, The first thing you have to do is make sure that you can actually win, he says, particularly given that this company has a very large retail investor base. You really kind of have to cut numbers and make sure that if you do as well as you think you do with institutional investors and you do as poorly as you typically expect to do with retail investors, there is still a path to victory. That is key. And the reason that I'm talking about Engine 1 and what they've done with Exxon is because this lays out that the way that they were able to get those board seats was by swinging large chunks of institutional and some retail investors to help vote their way when it came to voting for board elections. And that's how they got the seats that they did. They also nominated, you know, pretty well-respected consultants with good resumes. Uh, One guy was from Alphabet. uh, I forget. I think somebody else was from um, an energy company. That's, That's escaping me right now. But again, they nominated these people and worked to galvanize several different chunks of voters to make this happen. In order to understand why this isn't possible with Endeavor, at least right now, or as we know of, you have to go back to Endeavor's initial S1 filing and the prospectus. When Endeavor went public, they issued a lot of different types of shares. In fact, they issued class A, class B, class C, class X, class Y, And I think that's all of them. Let me see. Yes, A, B, C, X, and Y shares, each carrying different voting rights. So for those of you that never took finance or didn't get too deep into finance in high school or college, um, or, or if you have taken couple finance classes where you've talked about stocks and bonds and all that fun stuff, right? The the general vagueness of it all. You, know, you might remember that there's common stock and preferred stock. This is similar in a way, different class shares. This is normally done for voting rights being one of them. But on top of that, you know, certain class shares may get a preferred dividend payout. So if there's only so much money to pay out for a dividend, uh, you know, a preferred Class might get that dividend, whereas if there's not enough to get out to the common, they they don't do it. Um, Debt collection. So if a company is in trouble and maybe goes bankrupt, they are first in line to keep and trade in their shares for whatever they're worth versus people at the back of the line in common stock. A lot of different reasons you can do this. But voting shares is a big one. And in the prospectus that Endeavor did release, Class A and X shares will carry one vote per share. Class Y shares will carry 20 votes per share. That's right, 20 to one. That's key, we'll come back to that. Uh, B and C stock have no voting rights, so they probably again get a you know preferred dividend, that type of stuff in order to give up their voting rights. But class Y shares will carry 20 votes per share. A and X only carry one. Patrick Whitesell, who is executive chairman of Endeavor, uh, Ari Emanuel, who we all know, uh, and affiliates of Silver Lake, which we know to be a big partner in both the UFC and Endeavor, hold a majority of Y and X stocks after the offering, about 89% between the three of them. That's massive. Um, it says in the prospectus, and I quote, as they will be able to control any action regarding the general approval of our stockholders, including the election of our board of directors, the adoption of amendments to our certificate of incorporation and bylaws, and the approval of any merger or sale of substantially all of our assets. That phrase is key and that's in a prospectus, right? So this is being sent out when they're doing their IPO to try and get institutional investors. They're going to hold all the cards, regardless of what the other shares do. And keep in mind, the EDR that you can buy through your stockbroker or whatever app you're trading on, Robinhood, Fidelity, Schwab, whatever you have, right? If you go into your your app, your brokerage app, and you... Buy a share of EDR, you're buying class A. One. One vote per share. Patrick Whitecell, Ari Emanuel, and Silver Lake is pretty much all class Y. You cannot just go in and say, you know what, I want to buy a class Y share on your brokerage account. That's not how that works. So even if... Jake Paul and Jeffrey, Joffrey Wu, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, um, go in and buy up a ridiculous amount of the leftover shares that are on the market right now. Um, Aaron Bronstetter, again, had tweeted out today, I think it's like two or three million in volume or something like that. Even if they bought all of those, they still can't overrule Whitesell, Emmanuel, and and Silverlake. The only way this works, and this makes a difference, is if they somehow have a way to get one of those three to vote with them. And really, it almost certainly have to be for big impact. Uh, biggest impact would be Silver Lake um, and the affiliates. But yeah, even if you had Emmanuel or Whitesell, which I think is 17 and 14, respectively, You could maybe get a a couple seats on the board, but you can't make full change there. You can't. Um, You can maybe get a seat on the board and cause a little bit of a ruckus, but you're going to get outvoted, and it's still going to be the Emmanuel Whitesell Silver Lake show. And there's no reason right now to think that Jake Paul and Jeffrey Wu have somehow found a way to buy class y shares from those investors. Maybe there's been back deals been going on. Maybe they know certain people, right? Um they obviously have a fair amount of influence. Maybe they are working on the back end and somehow getting those class y shares, but if they don't have class y shares, it doesn't matter. It really does not. And it's all for show. It's it's a PR publicity stunt. So right now we have to take it at face value and it's a PR publicity stunt. There's nothing else going on. It's as simple as that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how it works. So I know a lot of people are saying this is big. They hope to work from the inside out. As it stands right now, unless they have somehow bought Class Y shares, which means they've had dealings directly with White Cell Emanuel or the affiliates of Silver Lake, and we don't know about it, which is hypothetically possible but again doubt it unless that's happened this is smoke and mirrors with no real teeth at all hate hate to burst your bubble and a lot of people are going to say you know this is a huge deal but and and again jake paul has brought a spotlight on this much more of a mainstream spotlight than others because of what he was able to do outside of his boxing career. Um, so it, it does put a little bit of PR pressure on Endeavor, but it's not going to actually force them to change at all. It's, it's just not going to happen. As I said at the top of the show, humans are emotional, and it's always possible that, you know, there's a petty squabble that breaks out between... White Cell or Silver Lake and or Emanuel White Cell who knows whatever and 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 they get on board right it, politics are always part of the game but I doubt that happens and I doubt even if they have some sort of squabble they align with Jake Paul and Jeffrey Wu that's my two cents on it but it, it's again not a huge deal not as nearly big a deal as people expect it is not that Jake Paul went in bought a huge chunk of Endeavor and now is going to show up to board meetings and be like hey what's up they'll be on investor calls I'm sure they'll find a way to be heard on investor calls where you dial in right Um, because they'll generally take any shareholder questions and I'm sure Endeavor will do their best to screen said calls for the most part but I would imagine Jake Paul will find a way to get somebody some proxy in who gets through screening and then ends up being jake ball or jeffrey Wu um, or one of their partners asking harder hitting questions um but other than maybe some ruckus on an earnings call nothing else is really happening here it's it's just you know is what it is and and again The markets may react to this. Um, I believe Endeavor was down a dollar thirty-three cents today, which is—I mean—the market today in general, the past few days, has been super volatile. But um, you know, it could cause some retail sell-off or some, you know, to speak. But not going to be a huge deal. So, sorry to burst your bubble, guys. It is not a legit activist investor threat. Unless they have class Y shares. If you hear Jeffrey Wu or Jake Paul talk about class Y shares, different story. And then I will revisit this. But I cannot imagine they've made that deal where they're going to be able to get board seats and do things of that nature. So, sorry, Ariel even though I know you're probably not watching this, Uh, but you know, that's, it's not nearly as big a deal as you think it is. And it on the surface, sure. It looks like, Holy crap. It's all this stuff, but dig a little bit deeper. It's, it's smoke and mirrors pretty much through and through. All right. So another thing we of course have to talk about on this episode is Francis and defeated Cyril gone, kept his belt um, and has fought out his contract. At this point, it will trigger a championship clause, which I'm sure the UFC will enact, uh, meaning that I think it's three fights or one year, whichever comes earlier. Um, But Francis Ngannou has confirmed that his contract sunsets and is essentially over come December of this year that's what he had said. December, my guess is late December might be early January, but he's saying December we'll roll with that. So in December of this year, Nganu is a free agent, hypothetically. Now he talked on the MMA hour with Errol Hawani about how he left $7 million on the table, which was again, probably offers to sign a new deal, get paid 3 million or so, or 3.5 million as a base plus pay-per-view points. Um, But again, would have triggered a whole new deal. So it would have been five years from that point because he said he talked about the Stipe fight. So you 3.5 with Stipe and gone makes sense. Um, You know, great interview, very candid between Hilwani and him. But he chose to fight this out. And as I've stated pre UFC 270, um, you know, I, I truly believe he sits out here and he waits for a year to be up and then he looks to go into boxing. Um, that would be my guess. What should he do, though? Let's look at it from, from Ngannou's side first, then we'll take a look at UFC's side, especially given the Dana White antics at UFC 270. So a lot of people have been talking about, well, what about fighting John Jones, Right. What about fighting? You know, getting paid more to fight just heavyweight contenders. It's not—it's not that much of a stretch to think that if Ngannou were to stay in the UFC, there wouldn't be too many contenders for him, right? The biggest threats I personally see are a rematch with GaN and Stipe. Just because Stepe can make adjustments. We've seen him do that with the DC fights. He could come back and, and end up finding a way to beat Ngannou. Um But those are his biggest threats. I, I like Curtis Blades a lot as a threat, too. Also, if he can um, avoid the big power shot, but he's lost twice to Nganu already, so it would be hard to get him up there for a third fight. Uh, I think he you know, dismantles... A lot of the other guys volkov um aspinall who's rising i think right now anyway he, he beats aspinall there's there's not too many visible threats for Nganu. he's gone through most of the heavyweight division's strongest competitors so there's an argument to be made you know he gets let's say five million per fight he he negotiates that he stays around he keeps getting that he gets pay-per-view points he can kind of just keep doing that but Nganu himself said it's more about the freedom. He wants to be actually treated about an independent contractor. He wants health insurance. He wants those things. That is important. He's made it clear that it's not just about the money. Because of that, and because at any time, right, it's heavyweight, one punch could end the night, um, or one wrong move can end the night in a fight. Um, I I think it probably makes sense for Nganu given... He is still the, the lineal heavyweight champ to go to boxing. You had Tyson Fury call Ngannou out, even post gone fight, right? And I know a lot of people said, nobody's going to have interest in watching him box Tyson Fury now, and, oh, Tyson Fury would crush him, all that stuff. You can spin this if you're Ngannou and his team. You can easily say... Okay, gone fight happened, but yeah, my legs were messed up, so, you know, I need surgery. My M- I tore my MCL, my ACL sprain. doctor said it was super bad. I was wearing a leg brace up until two weeks out of the fight. It's easy to be like, yeah, that that performance wasn't the best. And even with all that, I still wrestled and did what I had to do and, and kind of write that off and use that as a narrative. And you say, forget about that fight. Look at when I'm healthy. Look at what I do to Stipe when I'm healthy. Look at what I do to... Rosenstruck, Overeem, Cain Velasquez, the list, Curtis Blades, list goes on and on. Look at what I do when I'm healthy. And the best part for Ngannou is, is that Tyson Fury was the one who tweeted out like, hey, if you wanna make some money, come fight me. He's still about it post fight. So Ngannou just has to ride that tweet and be like, yep, let's do it. Let's have a boxing match. Sounds fantastic. Let's go make some money. As the show many guys brought up, uh, Kurt Emhoff, who was specifically, you know, Triller right now, as the show many guys pointed out with their guest, Kurt Emhoff, Triller right now is grossly overpaying fighters. I mean, grossly overpaying them. He wouldn't go into specifics, but he said high seven figures for Evander Holyfield for their fight there. And Ganu can just go over to Triller and immediately be like, yep, let's do this. If you can't get the the Fury fight done, right? If you can get the Fury fight done, you're going to make a stupid amount of money because it's Tyson Fury. And between that, you know, freak show of power and power, I I think that does pretty well. I don't think it does, you know, crazy numbers, but I think it sells enough that you end up with a fair amount of, of revenue, especially because you don't have the UFC taking the majority of it. I'd say you're easily, easily eight figures with that matchup, without a doubt, right? Dante Wilder, I've seen that thrown around. Again, all of these paydays are more than Ngannou ever would have made in the UFC. You can probably negotiate better chunks of the pay-per-view buys. I mean, why not? Why would you not do this? Mind you, also, these are one-off fights. These are not, you are locked into a agreement with Triller for five years or with, um, Tyson's guys who are owned by ESPN, um, which could cause some friction, but that aside, um, you know you're not locked in to a five-year term with those people want to make a deal where you're locked into a set amount of fights right like canelo did with the zone things like that then you're then you're getting paid crazy money paid way better than he would have in the ufc that's for sure much more than 600k probably a lot more than 3.5 mil Right. So if Nganu wants that freedom and actually treated as an independent contractor, which he said multiple times he wants, and he wants a payday. Boxing is 100% the way to go. I don't know how he doesn't go into boxing. Unless it's an MMA fight or a mixed rules fight against a boxer or something that, you know, you do in in Triller or something like that. But otherwise, it's, it's a it's a done deal. It's outside of the UFC, that's for sure, especially given the relationship that he has with Dana White that um, his manager and agent, Markel Martin, has Right, posted that text from an anonymous number. If you haven't seen that on his Instagram, pretty terrible. Uh, Francis said was received an email about being threatened to be sued because of conversations with Jake Paul's promoter. That's just bad business. It doesn't matter at that point what – money they're offering you. I've done a lot of consulting for a lot of different companies. If a company gives you red flags in the negotiation project, I've found it's almost always best to, to cut and run because just wait until you're actually working with them. Doesn't always end up that working that way. There's been one or two exceptions, but for the most part, if I've had a company where they've been, you know, messing around in the negotiation process of my rate or start dates or scope of projects or what have you, and and they're just not seemingly together, doesn't usually end well if I end up taking that contract because that's, that's supposed to be them at their best. That's supposed to be them trying to get you to the table, trying to meet halfway, right? For the UFC to, to do this, for Dana White to not be at the post-fight press conference, not wrap the belt around Ngannou's waist, uh, publicly bash his manager agent, that's just bad business. Why would you want to work for a company that does that? Why? Why in the world, if you're in Ngannou, would you want to take that deal? It doesn't make sense business-wise, it is not worth it. You walk away and you know you make more money and you know you're not locked down with any of those other options I listed. So yes, best strategy for Nganu is to cut and run. UFC on the other hand, right? What is their best strategy? When you look at that, it comes to, you know, PR is not great, optics are not great, but again, People are emotional. I saw Josh Gross, our own, over at Sure Dog, talking about how if you know it's a proxy war between CAA and WME, sort of. Yes, I would agree. There's I've already touched on that in other episodes. There's definitely some tension there, and there are some tactics being used by Endeavor to, at least from outward perceptions, um, some some bias against some of the fighters represented, right? That I talked about last week. But Dana's response, I would bet money is much more just him. I talked about Adam Newman, founder of C or founder, co-founder of and CEO of WeWork. Again, go read that story. Go read what he was like go read about what a lot of startup investors or a lot of CEOs are actually being like and yes that is a startup that's you know different but endeavor is still pretty new right at least this version of endeavor um, and you'll see that there are, are certain traits and certain you know personalities that dominate the sport that's part of the reason dana white is the face of The promotion, and he really is. He is the face of UFC, if you think about it. Yes, there's McGregor. Yes, there's Adesanya, all of that. But White is really the face, the business face of the UFC. Even though it's owned 100% by Endeavor at this point, even though he doesn't do a ton of the fighter deals, you got Hunter Campbell um, doing a lot of the deals, right, for... Fighters and things of that nature. Dana White is perceived as as the business, the Vince McMahon of UFC. I have to imagine White, at least because he was at the pay-per-view, because I saw you know people saying, "Oh, he did this or that," and I don't know about all that. Um, I have to imagine White had an emotional response to. The- heavyweight fight, especially because it was pretty even going into round five, seemed like Gone had it, and then he didn't. Um, yeah, I, I can't imagine there wasn't some emotional reaction there. PR, again, not great to have your your president not show up to each press conference uh, or put the belt around the heavyweight champion, or at least be in the cage to put the belt around the heavyweight champion I think for the first time ever he was in the cage with Stipe when Stipe grabbed the belt out of his hands um, I think he's been in the cage most every other time and so again him not going to the first pay-per-view of the year post fight press conference but he showed up to Cater versus Chikadze press conference that's not a great look what you do with the UFC if you're the UFC here is you 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 know maybe make another offer, bump up the money a little bit, but you probably know at this point you've probably have a done deal. You you kind of just move on. You pretty much just do what you got to do and you you don't bring extra light to it. You have White, just have kind of measured responses. Say what he Repeat what he's been saying about, you know, we'd love to have you if you want to be here. If you don't, go ahead and leave. And just keep reiterating that fact and say, next question, let's talk about something else. And try and divert it away. That's all you do. And then you end up with an interim heavyweight title fight, maybe four or five months in. The fact that Francis is injured, you can play that up, especially if he's having surgery, right? You can say, oh, well, we've got to have an interim fight because Francis is in- injured. We don't know his contract status, all that, blah, blah, blah. You can you mention it, but you essentially blame it on the injury. You have the interim fight, and then when Ngannou leaves, you just promote that winner to Undisputed, and you keep on rolling. It will pass. It is not a a damning, this is it, like this is going to start the tidal wave of, of trouble things in my opinion I think this is a ripple and I think if you have more champions start to step up and say this and do this then you're looking at a problem but right now I think it's in the best interest for the UFC to let these guys go and to kind of just ignore it do a classic ignore it from a PR perspective it will pass it has passed before there have been other champions and other people that have, have voiced displeasure, have voiced issues, and ultimately it has passed. Now, of course, you have the lawsuit that spring pressure and all of that. You have Jake Paul making a big ruckus. Sure, that's all fine and well and good, but Endeavor still in a strong position and has all the leverage. There's none of this right now that changes the leverage. The only way the leverage truly flips is if you get enough champions to say, you know what, my contract is going to be up soon with the new five-year clause, too, and all of a sudden start leaving. And then if they all start congregating together at a particular promotion, then you are in trouble, right? Let's say everybody left. Um, Ingano leaves, and then year later. Less than a year later, Usman leaves, Adesanya leaves, Jones leaves, and they all end up in PFL together or Bellator or one. Then you're in trouble because now you've got multiple top tier fighters all in a promotion together that could maybe on a particular show rival you, especially with the type of shows that the UFC likes to put on in order to keep costs low. Right, uh, and that goes back to the scarcity videos that I have talked about in the past. You you lose that scarcity where you're controlling the majority of the scarce resource. You start to lose your competitive advantage. You start to lose your competitive advantage. Then you're in trouble. Until then, it, it's you ride it out and you, you keep on turning the cogs of the machine. So. Again, God's best strategy, get out, go to boxing, do one of those things, especially right now. Wait for more people to get out of their contract, and then maybe you look at talking with them and going to a promotion together. Could go that route. But for right now, get out, go do boxing, go do triller, mixed rules, whatever you want. Um, go do that. That's the best strategy, in my opinion. UFC best strategy is to repeat the same statements over and over <laughs> And divert, deflect. Classic, you know, PR 101. You have a prepared set of answers to a couple of questions you know you're going to get asked. You keep saying that. People keep asking, you say, let's move on. To the next question. Here's my answer. I already answered that. Move on. You see it all the time in other sports, right? Football. Antonio Brown, how many people were like, what's the deal? And they're like, yeah, he's not doing this. That's all I'm saying. Saw him commenting on it. Next. That's what you got to do if you're the UFC because this too will pass for the business side. It will. All right, next thing we have to talk about today is the PFL and not in depth anyway, their new deal, but more a cease and desist letter served to them by WSOF Global. So again, I'm recording this on Tuesday the 25th to be specific and news releases come out, PFL has extended with ESPN and apparently Kayla Harrison, according to Don Davis, um, is is imminent to come back for the next season. Not shocked by Harrison, especially with Iwana saying it was pretty close to being done and with Nunez falling off, um, probably got a better deal than she had originally using the tease of Nunez and Dana White's comments as leverage. So not shocked if she does actually sign up. Um, New deal is a little bit surprising just because of how late it comes. Financial terms were not disclosed. My guess is it's probably not as good a deal as their last one. The reason I say that is if it had gone really well, if if PFL had done the numbers that ESPN Plus really wanted and and Disney was happy with them, they almost certainly would have renegotiated terms towards the end of last season right and when don davis was asked about it at one point they said they're you know they've got a couple of offers on the table in terms of broadcasting they're going to find it there was pretty much speculation that they would have to find a new home because the deal was up and there was no indication that it's hey we're re-upping with espn or we're talking with espn none of that was made it really seemed like they'd have to find a new home and you have, for example, Challenger Series going to Fubo TV, which is going to start up, right? Um, you do have some new sponsors, which may have helped PFL. You have Next Level Water, I believe, a um, couple of other things that I forget. Uh, I think An- Anheuser-Busch is sponsoring with them again for Presidente and all of that stuff. Um, but it certainly seemed like this was more of a last-minute deal wouldn't be shocked if espn was like we're going to pay you exactly what would you paid you last time or less and first pfl said no i don't really want that i'm going to shop around couldn't get anything better and then was like all right let's do this that's just my take on it based on the timing because i'm pretty sure you would have seen movement earlier than this if it was espn was very happy with all of that so i'm not sure that's really what happened here i don't believe so but with all that in the news today, and that's great for PFL fans, um, you also had, over the weekend, World Series of Fighting Global serve a cease and desist letter to them. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. For those of you that don't know, PFL used to be World Series of Fighting, which had its own storied crazy background, was on NBC uh, Sports Network for a bit, had New Year's Eve shows, all that. That's where Justin Gaethje came from. you watching this show, you probably know WSOF. WSOF rebranded, but also split off from WSOF Global, which was a broader group that was using World Series of Fighting in other countries. Europe, uh, Asia, I think Africa, I'm not 100% sure. Um, but basically, they came to an arrangement for a 10-year license agreement that provides WSOF Global with the sole and exclusive rights to all of the company's licensed marks outside of North and South America. License marks being defined as any and all trademarks, service marks, logos, signs, commercial symbols, all of that. Those contractual rights prohibited licensor, which would be PFL in this case, with the ability to conduct no more than three events per year outside North and South America. In the cease and desist letter, WSOF Global President Sean Wright states, we've attempted to communicate in good faith to resolve our issues with PFL. We have previously put PFL on notice for their many violations and breaches of our agreement, especially after PFL continues to publicly announce plans to conduct events in Europe, Asia and Africa. Uh, they're exclusive territories. PFL may not conduct more than three events per year, and they must provide at least 90-day notice to WSOF Global to do um, goes on to say, Don Davis, chairman of PFL, signed off on the doc- documents listing the license agreement to be assumed by the new PFL company uh, and were notified by a corporate attorney. PFL is now refusing to communicate in a violation of our joint agreement. We have no other choice at this point to enforce our contractual rights. This is also from pronewsreport.com is where I'm saying this. Um, I believe it's an aggregate from another story, but this is just where it popped up for me. Um, Since PFL uses to communicate with WSOF Global, um, White stated, at first we were excited at the opportunity to work with the new PFL executives and the additional funding coming into the company in 2017. They've now raised over 150 million, 175, according to the press release today, uh, by their own account, and appear to have burned through most of this money, continuing to operate at a massive year-on-year loss. Were these investors made aware that PFL did not have the rights to its own trademarks in the majority of the world? Was the 10-year license agreement disclosed prior to accepting these investments? Did PFL make claims to the investors it was expanding into territories that had already licensed to WSOF Global? You may never get the answers to these questions as deeply concerning. So that's just shouts across the bow, right? Um, I mean, that's that's not great when WSOF Global is is coming out and saying, what are you guys doing? They're operating a massive loft. So do the investors realize this? What's going on? But probably the most important Piece of this whole cease and desist letter is PFL has been accused of engaging in naked licensing uh, by refusing to talk to WSF Global. So what naked licensing is is that if a trademark owner fails to exercise control over a license, court will find the trademark has been abandoned. And when that happens, and this can happen even if you just fail to monitor a license, uh, all of that, you lose the rights to their trademark when engaging in naked licensing, meaning it prevents others from the ability to use that trademark. So again, that essentially means that if PFL is found to be engaged in naked licensing and a court agrees that that's the case, anybody can make PFL stuff. Anybody can take that PFL logo, uh, make merch, Start a company called the PFL, build a website that talks about the PFL. Anybody can do that. You lose your trademark rights, which is massive and huge for a startup MMA promotion that is continually trying to compete with the UFC, Bellator 1, all these guys. More so, UFC and Bellator 1 is its own issue that, you know, we already know about. But Wright went on to say, And I quote, why PFL just refuses to discuss these issues with us is mind-boggling. Our company and staff have spent years supporting the organization. That hard work is in vain if PFL loses the rights to protect these trademarks. Hemorrhaging money year after year is not a good operating business model, especially since after wasting that enormous amount of money, PFL viewership is only half of what WSOF got on NBC Sports. That... Is about as that is about as much of a public fu as you can do. <laughs> um, I mean, you're you're just saying the PFL is terribly run. It's a huge issue. All these things that that is a giant fu to the PFL from WSOF Global. And again, if they lose those trademarks, they are in major trouble. We've already talked about how viewership is not where they wanted. Um, yes, they're getting some sponsors now, which is good. And and they have a broadcast deal, which goes for one year with the option for ESPN to extend. So it's not another two-year deal. It's only one. Um, so that may help them, but it's not looking great, right? Uh, again, I've talked about circling the drain before. I had my bold prediction last week for uh, the first bold prediction prediction of 2022 pfl seems to be making that more and more a reality you only have a one-year broadcast deal if your ratings don't do well if your shows don't pull in the audience they need to you also are found in court to be guilty of naked licensing or you try and put on events with with sof global essentially taking you to court and fighting you it's not a good time Yes, I know they've raised more money. They're at 175 million. That's all well and good. They've burned through a lot. The fact that that Sean Wright is just publicly lambasting them—it certainly looks like it could be the death knell for PFL, uh, especially after the end of the year, right? Because um, again, you got you paying out a lot of money with these tournaments. You are. And you're not bringing in a ton. And yes, coronavirus restrictions will hopefully lift, knock on wood, here soon uh, for a lot of areas. But even still, prior to COVID, you were having trouble getting tickets sold. The ratings for your championship finals playoffs were not good. The ratings in general were pretty bad overall. It's, It's not... Looking great. Unless the ESPN Plus viewership is there and we just can't see it, which is a possibility. I don't think a likely one, but technically a possibility. It's looking very bad for the PFL. This cease and desist letter is... Whew, I mean, this is a, a big fu and a big we'll take you to court threat is the way I read this. Um, yeah, not great. So we'll see what comes of it. I hope PFL pulls it out again. Uh, I know some people have accused me of being against the PFL. I'm really not. I, I love the format, actually. I would love to see bigger names in the PFL. I'd love to see it succeed. I think competition is great for all parties involved, especially the fighters. And I am a big merit guy. So even though I think the PFL scores need a little bit of tweaking and you have some issues like you did last year with the... the overturn of the the fake tap and all of that stuff or the ghost tap rather um you know you've had some of those issues for sure but overall i like the concept and i'd like them to keep tweaking it and to succeed this doesn't seem like that's a path to uh accomplishing that so let's see what happens but yeah i again if one promotion is going to kick it at this point gotta say pfl because one is still somehow raising money and these guys are raising a little bit of money, but they're also now in in a legal battle that may not end well for them. All right. Last thing I want to talk about today is payouts and transparency from our friends over at the California State Athletic Commission from USC 70. Uh, so while a lot of other commissions are kind of, you know, making it harder to see what fighters are making, what they're doing, all of that. Good old CSAC is still releasing fighter payouts. They're also doing the weight cutting thing, which I, I believe is important. Um, so so that transparency is great. We saw, right, for a fact, we know that Inganuo only made $600,000. Uh, Gon made 500K. Figueredo, I think, made 150, something like that. 100 or 150. Um, but what really, you know, because a lot of people. People were saying, oh, these payouts, you know, show how crazy the fighter pay is. Yeah, but those have always been there. People are just finally kind of, more media is, is waking up to it, which is fantastic. And Nganu's contract situation um, really highlighted it this time, so that's good. But the ones that stood out the most to me were the 10 and 10s, which came from Dana White Contender Series. Because, again, a lot of people had said the minimum now that the UFC had raised things to and all this stuff was 12k, 12k, 12k to show 12k to win. That's the assumption that we were basing things off of. So to see that 10 and 10 was interesting, but this goes back to what I believe I had talked about. I think it was a month or two ago when we saw the Dana white contender series contract, when those fighters signed that contract, they're signing to fight for Dana White Contender Series, LLC. Its own LLC company. They're not signing for the UFC. That is crucial. Because I think that's how they get away with the 10K, 10K. Because keep, it, keep in mind, right? Um, if you subcontract through Dana White's Contender Series, you have the agreement with DWCS DWCS has the agreement with the UFC. You get to fight on the UFC stage, but whatever you sign for DWCS holds. Give you a real world example. As an independent contractor consultant, especially when I was younger and just starting out doing my independent contracting, I often would go through a recruitment firm. If you've ever worked in software space or um, you know the tech space, and you do a independent contracting agreement you you almost certainly go through a recruitment firm where somebody reaches out about a job and it's not the actual end client, it's a recruitment firm who wants to hire you. They they say they will you know kind of guide you on how to get the job with the end client, all that. So I did a lot of work where, again, I would be hired by company XYZ. They would recruit me for a job at maybe, um, let's say Apple, even though I personally didn't work at Apple, but let's just for this case, right? The end job is at Apple and I'm being recruited by company XYZ and we reach an agreement on pay. Then I go an interview with Apple. Apple likes me and they say, okay, we're good to go. I'm agreeing to pay, let's say X amount of dollars. Let's for stupidity's sake, let's say I'm doing, um, you know, I'm new, I'm a new right out of college guy. So let's say I'm doing some entry level business analyst work for $30 an hour, right? 30, $35 an hour. That's what the recruitment firm is paying me. The recruitment firm then turns around and charges maybe 60, $70 an hour for me as a resource. And then the recruitment firm keeps that money on top. That happens all the time, especially in tech. And the reason why is, again, recruitment firms go out and they use their kind of sifting through people um, to, you know, find good candidates for particular jobs that, again, might be six months, a year. They're not long term. So Apple doesn't want to deal with that. And then they're also not paying benefits. You're not paying health, uh, dental, all that. At least Apple wouldn't be. The recruitment firm would pay for my vacation, health, whatever. And depending on the firm, maybe it's good, maybe it's garbage, Depends, all, all depends on the actual firm. I've worked with both where you get a higher pay rate and you get almost no benefits. Uh, you get a lower pay rate, but you get actually good benefits you might see at you know a nicer company. Some companies offer the option of, you can either come in at hourly or you can come in at salary, et cetera. So again, that is, is kind of what goes on in the tech world. Um, independent contracting world, especially with developers, uh, you know, BAs, project managers, all those guys. That's a world that I lived in for a long time and still still kind of live in. Um, But same thing happens here is, okay, you signed to fight Dana White Contender Series. And if we like you, we sign you. And then what we do is we have you fight for the UFC. And yes, even though it's all kind of owned by its own company, and in fact, it might actually be separate. That's another thing here. It might technically be that Dana White truly owns Dana White Contender Series. I don't think that's the case, but it could be. Um, A different group of people could own DWS LLC, and then they say, okay, we're going to get you fights in the UFC. And then you fight in the UFC, but you're stuck to that 10K, 10K contract. And rather than, you know, Dana pocketing the 2K for show and win or whatever, um, that just saves costs on Endeavor's side. That's how that happens. So, yes, UFC can say, well, we have a contract minimum of 12K, 12K. But Dana White's contender series can say, well, we have a contract minimum of 10K, 10K. And they can get away with it that way. Now, mind you, if you fight out your contract from Dana White's contender series, then you almost certainly get an offer from the actual UFC. That is higher. It does do a normal pay bump. You don't go from 10K to 12K, right? Um, That probably happens, especially if you're more of a rising star. But that's how they can circumvent that process. That's why you saw fighters get 10K, 10K. also explains why more and more fighters are getting hired on the contender series, and then other fighters are getting cut from... The UFC because they're essentially subcontracting to themselves in order to cut down on cost. And they will continue to do this until a lot more guys, majority of them, I would guess, come from contender series because it's more cost effective from a lot of different ways. It also might help them tax wise. I'm not 100% sure on that because it is a, an agreement between two separate entities. Not sure exactly how that works. Uh, depending on the specific agreement it could go a couple of ways but either way cuts costs that's why you see 10k 10k Um, expect more of that when we do have fighter payouts we won't have them often unfortunately but expect more people getting signed to those deals all right guys well that wraps up another episode of the fight business podcast appreciate you guys listening watching on youtube uh if you are on YouTube, hit that like, subscribe, bell notification. If you are listening on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, all that, love you guys as always. Let me know your thoughts on Nganu's strategy. Uh, we did have some connection issues, so I do apologize if I cut in, out, or it's weird. Um, our, our wonderful producer, John Brannigan, is going to do his best to piece that together. I uh, apologize in advance, John, but he does fantastic work, so I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, but... Let me know your thoughts on that. Let me know your thoughts on the Jake Paul situation. I hope that cleared it up. If you have any more questions about how that works, let me know. I'm more than happy to answer. Um, let me know about PFL. Do you think the PFL is going to go under? I really want to know your thoughts on that one because I think there's a solid chance they might. I think it might happen at the end of this year, but but let me know how you feel about it. I know PFL isn't the most popular topic on here, so maybe you don't even care. If you don't care, let me know that as well. Uh, and then, of course, fighter Pay with Dana White Contender Series. that That's a big one. You know, are you okay with the 10K, 10K? Would you rather see them make 12 and 12 and, and not subcontract, but maybe get as, as easy an opportunity to foot in the door? Let me know all of your thoughts, all your questions. Love hearing from you guys. Uh, appreciate patience it's been really busy with work but i'm getting back in the swing of things and we're getting these out regularly now uh so we will have more business to cover next week appreciate everybody and until next time get money